Thanks, Louise. Well, good evening. Welcome to Uni Church. I'm Rowan, uh, one of the pastors here. And how great it is to get to the last section in the book of Amos. We've been in this book uh, for the last five weeks. We've been hearing what God has to say to his people in the northern tribes, the, the northern part of, of Israel, and really God's kind of take on the human heart. So why don't we ask God now that as we keep listening to his word, that by his spirit he'd shape us, he'd mold us, he'd encourage us, and he'd change us tonight. Let's pray. Lord God, we are so thankful that your word is living and active, that you speak to your people throughout history and that you've spoken to us through your son and in your word. And we pray that tonight, that by your spirit, you would encourage us, you would convict us, you would let us see you as you really are and walk away from hearing you as people who are changed. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the greatest frustrations in my life is the experience of people nagging me. I hate it when people nag me. Do you know that nagging friend who always wants to take you to the gym? They're like, come on, come to the gym with me. Come to the gym and you're like, shut up. Are you saying I'm fat? And, and then, or, 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 or maybe you've got that friend who's kind of got this you know, pyramid scheme thing, they're a Tupperware and they want you to have a Tupperware party and invite all your friends around. Or, or perhaps it's the boyfriend or girlfriend who's sitting there saying to you, you know, seconds was okay, but fifths, come on, stop it. You're eating too much. I don't know what it is for you. Perhaps it's that person that's always trying to convince you that Apple are better than everything else. And if that's me, I'm sorry. I just need to say that now. But within marriage, one of the places that I've felt nagged the most, it's okay, I've got Sarah's permission to talk about this, is when Sarah brings up my issues of punctuality. Right? She regularly lets me know how much she hates it when I make her late and how hard she finds it when I say I'll be home at a certain time, but I'm not. It's like I've got an alternate understanding of time than the rest of the universe. And it's just like, it just feels so nagging, so frustrating. Have, have you ever felt that from someone? What are the nagging issues in your life? And when you experience what they are, what do you do with them? For me, whenever I feel like I'm being nagged by someone, there's this kind of strong undercurrent that I keep feeling. I don't know if you experience this. It's kind of baiting me to do the exact opposite of what they're saying. Do you ever feel that? Someone's saying, you should go to the gym. You're like, I am not going to the gym. Yeah, I should go to the gym, but I'm not going to go. And you kind of, you don't want to do it. It's like seeing a wet paint sign on a seat and and it says, wet paint, don't touch. And you're like, how long ago did you write that? Is it still wet? Really? And you just want to touch it. I don't know if you're anything like me, but I I hate people telling me what to do at this point. And when they're nagging me, I'm like, ah, just get out of my life. (laughs) Well, as we've walked through the last seven chapters of the book of Amos, it can feel like a bit of a, a rap sheet of the crimes of the people of Israel. And the overwhelming message that we've heard is about the injustice and the corruption amongst the rulers and the wealthy, about the oppression of the poor and the vulnerable about Israel's pretend religion. It was all about their outward appearance rather than serving God from the heart. The way that they've taken on the gods of the nations around them and just become like the nations around them rather than trusting in the one and only God. And last week we saw their arrogance and self-importance, relying on their wealth rather than the God who provides everything. So we've gone through the book of Amos. We've seen God call out those issues in the people of Israel, but in our lives as well, haven't we? Maybe you're here today and you've kind of been listening to the book of Amos and you've been thinking, you know what? God is just like one big fat nag. 
He's consistently going on to his people, Israel, telling them what they've got to change. Maybe you haven't been here for the last few weeks, but your view of God is still a similar one. He's always calling us out. He's always saying we need to stop living this way and start living that way. Each time you hear what people say about God, it's always like, I need to change. And every time we hear that, we kind of we'll become a little bit more entrenched in our own position. We walk away like that you know, well-meaning friend who says their peace, but then we just go, ah, I'm not going to do that. And we walk away unchanged. But there's one problem with the realization that someone is nagging you. Just before Sarah and I got married, we went to a pre-marriage counseling, which I thoroughly recommend if you're going to get married. Uh, make sure you do that. It's helpful to talk together about what issues could come up. And we, we met with um, the pastor who married us, who's one of the, the people that encouraged us into ministry as well. Um, and we're talking through different things that come up and different things that frustrate Sarah and I within marriage. And I think I brought up the reality. I'm like, oh, I hate it when Sarah nags me. Because you, you want to be real in these things, right? You don't want to just pretend everything's okay. It's nothing worse than the couple that rocks into pre-marriage counseling. We're perfect. You know, we we never, we never fight, we never do anything. And you're like, yeah, just wait. Anyway, so I bring up, look, it's this feeling of nagging. And he turned to me and he said, you know, it's only nagging when they're right. Every other time, they're just wrong. Right? If someone says something that's wrong to you, you don't feel nagged by them. You just go, no, I feel sorry for you. I don't feel embarrassed by what I've done. I feel embarrassed for you holding this view of the world or whatever it is. You're just kind of wrong in this point. But the moment we start feeling like we're nagged by someone is the moment we're actually admitting that there might be some seed of truth about it. As we get to the last chapter of Amos, we see that the the people of God are really, well, they have the spiritual EQ of a brick. That's not much for the engineers amongst us. You guys didn't laugh. There must be a lot of us tonight. (laughs) No, God's been pointing out their issues for so long. Look at the way that you're acting. Look at what I've done. You're not living my way. He's calling them to return to him over and over and over, but they don't listen. Like an ostrich, they stick their head in the sand. There's every likelihood that they're feeling nagged by God, definitely by Amos. Like, shut up. They literally tell him they don't want to hear you anymore. Go away. Rather than return to God, they bury their heads in the sand. They've become calloused. And none of us love being corrected. No one wakes up in the morning and is like, oh, I'm looking forward to a good rebuking today. I'm looking forward to people coming out to me and saying, look, I've got these issues with the way you're living in your life or this thing that you've said to me. We generally hate that because we, we hate being called out. And, and generally we react by either justifying what's being said. Oh, well, look, I did that for these reasons. It was, it was understandable. You know, we, we justify it either in our heads or, or verbally to the person or we minimalize it. Oh, look, it's not that bad. I know that that's there, but it's not as bad as what you're saying. Or the worst of the three, we run from it. We ignore it and we just run from what they're saying. We run from those people. We, we, we freeze them out as friends. But what we find in the book of Amos is the first point we're going to look at tonight. You can't run from God. You can't run from God. Amos chapter 8, verse 1. The Lord God showed me this, a basket of summer fruit. He asked me, what do you see, Amos? I replied, a basket of summer fruit. The Lord said to me, the end has come for my people Israel. I will no longer spare them. Now, at first reading, you're kind of like, well, that started out well, but got dark real quick, right? It kind of starts out, and there's this basket of summer fruit, sounds nice. 
in Amos's context, this would have been you know, figs and pomegranates, and it would have been like, oh, this is this lovely basket of fruit. But God is giving Amos and us a word picture here of the state of their hearts and the state of the nation of Israel. See, it's actually a play on words, because in Hebrew, the word for summer fruits is, is very much the same as the word for end. It's kind of like a rhyme that's going on. But you don't have to know Hebrew to understand what God's saying here, because it works in English too, doesn't it? Right? Summer fruits are the fruits that are ripe. And a basket full of ripe fruit is fruit that's about to meet its end. It's either going to be eaten, or it's going to get kind of go off and be stinky and horrible. So what God is putting before Amos to show to the people is a reality of the state of their hearts, that they are like a basket of summer fruit. Their time has come. They've been picked from the tree and they're about to experience the judgment of God. As God looks at the little pomegranates called Israel, he says, you've gone off. You're overripe. You've come to your end. You know when you uh, leave fruit in a fruit bowl for too long? Have you ever done that? Bananas are the worst. They always smell rank. Whenever they've been there for too long, and there's little fly things, I don't know where they come from, there's little buzzy things are suddenly around the fruit. I'm like, who let them in? I didn't see them there when it was together, but they kind of buzz around and they love it. They're like, oh, this is gross. God is saying, this is what you are like, Israel. And the only thing that's left to do with people that are off is to throw them out. What caused God's people to get so bad? We get to the end of the book of Amos and it's pretty full on. It's the same thing that he's been saying to them after the last seven chapters of Amos. They've become an unjust society. Verse 4, they, they trample the needy and do away with the poor. Verse 5, they, their worship is all show. All they care about is making money and cheating the poor. Listen to this. Um, chapter 8, verse 5. This is what they say. When will the new moon be over so we might sell grain? And the Sabbath so we might market wheat. We can reduce the measure while increasing the price and cheat with dishonest scales. Let me translate for you. Man, when will that guy at the front stop talking? I want to go away from church and start ripping people off on Facebook Marketplace. That's what I love doing. That's what he's saying. These people couldn't wait for the Sabbath to be over so they could get back out again and rip more people off. Start cheating people. They're playing a game called religion, but their hearts are far from God. I think it's right for us just to stop and pause at this point in the book of Amos and ask ourselves, where have we become overripe? Where are we playing a game called religion rather than listening to the God who made us and who loves us and who's made himself known to us? I'm thinking about myself and where I kind of go through the motions. And as we've been approaching Christmas, like Christmas is such a great time. But we, we spend so much of our time in the lead up to Christmas planning parties and buying gifts and thinking about what we want and asking each other for what would you like for Christmas. We've been doing that in our house and asking our kids for a list of what they want. One of our kids wrote on their list, I would like to upgrade my brother. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I'm like, okay. <laughs> And I think there's a sense where we think about Christmas as all about us. We start to become like Israel, wanting the Sabbath to be over so they can get back to ripping people off. We want to get through Christmas so we can rip off some wrapping paper and glory in the gifts that we've been given. Or perhaps to, to switch off and enter the holiday, the promise of a, of a false heaven that's to come. All the while forgetting that the holiday is a holy day. 
It's to be set aside for the reality of God become flesh. Of a gift that's been given to us of what God has done in His world. We make it about the things of here and now and we forget what it actually celebrates. That's what my heart is like. (laughs) How's yours? How are you going in the lead up to Christmas about making it about the giver rather than his gifts? Well, the sad news for Israel here is that it's now too late to change. The basket of fruit is only good for one thing, judgment. We have this view of God that we think that you know, his, his mercy will continue to go forever and ever and ever. That we can keep on poking the bear and in the end the bear will never smack us down. But do you know what? Amos chapter 8 and 9 shows us that that is not true. God's had enough of Israel's rejection of him, of their false security, of their oppression of the poor. And so he tells them that his judgment is coming. He dishes out to them what their future holds in, in a way that the, the punishment fits the crime. You won't pay attention to my holy days and actually engage with me? Verse 9, he says, I'll make the sun go down at noon and darken the land in the daytime. You ignore my holy days, I'm going to make you not even know day from night. Or verse 10, you feast and live for your own pleasure? Look at verse 10. I'll turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. See how the punishment fits the crime? They're going like, everything's great, I'm awesome, this is good, I don't really care about God. God says, yeah, watch this. You won't listen to my words spoken through the prophet Amos. Listen to what God says in verse 11 of chapter 8. Look, the days are coming. This is the declaration of the Lord God. When I will send a famine through the land, but not a famine of bread or a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and roam from north to east, seeking the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. In that day, the beautiful young women and the young men also will faint from thirst. They're not thirsting for water, they're thirsting for the Word of God. Have you ever stopped to ask yourself, what would happen if I knew nothing of the Word of God? As I hear that, there's there's part of me that goes, well, you know, maybe it wouldn't be that big a deal. I mean, who cares if we don't hear God's words? Sometimes we feel like that that's the reality of the day that we live in anyway. I don't hear God booming his voice from the sky. I don't hear a voice in my head saying, this is God, you need to do this, you need to do that. Like, why is that such a big deal to have a famine of the word of God? But I wonder, have you ever stopped to ask yourself, what if you knew nothing of God? A number of years ago, a friend, and, a friend and I visited Athens. I was doing a master's subject in the background of, of Christianity uh, in Israel. And um, we got to go to Athens because it was super close and super cheap to get there. And we, we flew in, not with a tour group, just my friend and I, into Athens late at night. Uh, we got the hire car from the place that was there. And I kind of planned our trip to our, the place we were staying by putting the maps on my iPad. I'm like, this is great. No maps, we won't lose them. It's all clear here. And um, so that, that was great. I downloaded the maps in the Google Map thing to have the area that we needed to be in on my iPad. And so we, we get to the, the airport, we jump in the car, and all the maps worked brilliantly until we got on the motorway and it got out of range of the Wi-Fi in the airport. And I thought I'd be fine. But you know how the map moves and you just see grey and you're like, here's this little dot, but everything's grey? That's the reality of what's going on. We're like, 
We're in Greece. Now, we can both do ancient Greek. We're both pastors, right? So we recognize the signs, but they're modern Greek. And we're like, oh, that, that says through this way. But we'd already passed the kind of the off-ramp at that point. I kid you not, we got on and off that motorway six times trying to find the right place. And every time we had to pay. We're like, more money. I'm like, dude, we've got to go the right way. And we're just like, like two old women in the car whinging at one another going, which way are we going? And yeah, we end up up this massive mountain. And we thought that was the right way. We'd, we'd taken a wrong turn off the motorway. And we get to the top. It's a dead end. There's these cars all parked there. So we turn around and we go back onto the motorway. But I went back on the wrong side of the road. It's divided road. I'm driving down the wrong side of divided road in Athens thinking, yeah, this is life. And then I suddenly hear these people yelling out from the lookout above. And I'm like, oh, they're really nice. And I'm like, no, we're on the wrong side of the road. What are we doing? I never felt more exposed then when I had no idea where I was going, what I was doing, how to get to where I needed to be, it just felt so scary at that point. Life without the Word of God is like trying to navigate your way through an, a foreign city just by your own nose with no signs and no map. It's a life that's lost. It's feeling about in the dark, causing damage to ourselves and each other and the world around us. The Word of God has had a profound and far-reaching effect on so many of the things that we take for granted as a civilized society. Justice, the whole Judeo-Christian view of, of what is right and wrong and moral order comes from the Word of God. The development of art and literature and music came, so much of it, from people who were singing about the true and living God who revealed them, Himself to them in His Word. The promotion of education and learning. The majority of the world's earliest universities and schools were founded by Christians who were eager to know and understand and read and speak the Word of God. The ideas of what is good and of moral order and protection of the vulnerable and, and care for the sick and human rights, they all come from the Word of God. Imagine we had none of that. Imagine a world that had not been impacted by the God of the universe. And left to ourselves, we'd revert to survival of the fittest. Dog ate dog. I don't think we truly recognize how important the Word of God is. And here is the horror of Israel's position, these northern tribes. Because of their rejection of the true and living God, God will remove Israel from the hearing of His Word. They'll forget it. They'll seek it, but not find it. They'll replace it. They'll rewrite it. And because of that, God will remove the very foundation of his relationship with his people. Forgiveness. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and he said, Strike the capitals of the pillars so that the thresholds shake. Knock them down on the heads of all the people. Then I'll kill the rest of them with a sword. None of those who flee will get away. None of the fugitives will escape. The altar was the place where, where sacrifices were to be offered so that the relationship between Israel and God could be restored, where, where God and man might meet and, and God would accept sacrifices so that they could be forgiven and be in right relationship with Him on the basis of His promises. Here God says, Israel, that altar, the pillars of the temple, all of them, gone. What he's saying is there is no more forgiveness for you. Have you ever had a moment where you know you've gone too far? 
You've said something in a way that you know that the relationship with the person you've said it to is just, you've damaged it in some way. Or perhaps you've acted in a way that's caused so much damage that repair is probably not going to be possible. Such a horrible thought, isn't it, to be in that position where relationship is no longer possible with someone. But that's the reality for God's people of Israel. When it comes to the judgment of God, there's nowhere to run. There's no place to hide. Look at verse 2 of chapter 9. If they dig down to Sheol, from, the, from there my hand will take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I'll bring them down. If they hide on the top of Carmel, from there I will track them down and seize them. If they conceal themselves from my sight on the sea floor, from there I will command the sea serpent to bite them. If they are driven by their enemies into captivity, into exile, from there I will command the sword to kill them. I will keep my eye on them for harm and not for good. At this point in the story of the book of Amos and the people of Israel, those northern tribes, God's not trying to nag Israel any longer. He's pronouncing their future. There's a sense where we hear that God will harm them and we think, how dare he? We're like, that's not the God that I know, but friends, he is just and he delivers justice. We think that God will just continue to forgive and forgive and forgive like he's some naive kind of puffy marshmallow man in the sky that we can get around. But what we see here is that he is not like that. But this is what life devoid of God's word does. It inflates our view of ourselves and we think, how dare God do that? How dare he harm them and not be for their good? But who are we to say that? When we reject the word of God, we don't see the world as God made it. And we inflate our view of ourselves. We put ourselves in the position of God and we go, God, we know what is right and good better than you do, which is the exact problem that happened in the Garden of Eden. Friends, what God is giving them is the justice that they deserve. Israel are not innocent. We just heard eight chapters of Amos showing that. Giving them time to return to God. There's something here about the character of God that should shake all of us from our slumber. God sees all. He knows all. And all of us are, are, are rotten fruit. We've turned our backs on Him and deserving of judgment. We must not sit thinking, oh, God will never find out. Or, oh, it'll all be okay. Or, oh, I think I'm right and you're wrong. Judgment will come. There will be a point where we go too far and God says enough is enough. Do you see how scary that is? The reality for those of us who continue to run from God is that judgment is what we deserve. And judgment will be what we get. Look at verse 8 of chapter 9. Look, the eyes of the Lord are on the sinful kingdom, and I will obliterate it from the face of the earth. Friends, whatever you think about God, do not think you can run from Him and win. It will not end well. Do not think you can put Him down as a well-meaning nag. He's the God of the universe. He knows all, He sees all, He's in control of it all, and He is just. Please hear this word from God tonight, this warning that says, return to Him 
while you still can. Stay in him while you are still able. But in Amos chapter 9, verse 8, the prophet of doom begins to play a new tune. It's the kind of breath we've been waiting for for these nine chapters in the book of Amos. It's the hope that we all need. He says this, Amos 9, verse 8, However, I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob. This is the Lord's declaration. For the northern kingdom of Israel, the sad news is that they are without hope. It is too far gone. They've crossed the line and they will never be a nation again. But God will sift his people. Look at verse 11. And that day I will restore the fallen shelter of David. I'll repair its gaps, restore its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old so that they may possess the remnant of Eden and all the nations that bear my name. This is the declaration of the Lord. He will do this. Here is something so amazing, something so powerful, something so incredibly huge that it becomes the central hope of the book of Amos and the scarlet thread of all human history. It's what gives forgiveness to the rebel and hope to the hopeless, is that in the face of punishment and the destruction of Israel, God will keep his promises. He will save a remnant. See, a few hundred years earlier, God made promises to King David. In 2 Samuel 7, God said he would raise up a son from David's line, from the descendants of David, and he would establish his kingdom forever. It would be an everlasting kingdom. Listen to what he says, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 13. He, this son of David, is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with a rod of men and blows from mortals. But my faithful love will never leave him, as it did when I removed it from Saul whom I remove from before you. Your house, he says to David and David's son, and kingdom will endure before me forever and your throne will be established forever. Irrespective of any act of David or of God's people that followed, God chooses to lavish his love on those who don't deserve it. Not everyone, but on those that he chooses to. He chooses to act according not to what we deserve, but out of his great love and for his glory. Look at how Amos speaks of what God will do on that day. Verse 13 of chapter 9. Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When the plowman will overtake the reaper and the one who treads grapes, the sower of seed, the mountains will drip with sweet wine and the hills will flow with it. I'll restore the fortunes of my people Israel. They will rebuild and occupy ruined cities, plant vineyards and drink their wine, make gardens and eat their produce. I'll plant, them on, I'll plant them on their land and they will never again be uprooted from the land I've given them. The Lord your God has spoken. In other words, for the big picture nation of Israel, not the northern tribes, the ten, but those that are left, Judah, the, the, the two that are in Jerusalem and Judah, that there will be a time where things will be so abundant that they are still harvesting the crops when it comes time to plant again. So they're still, there's so many crops, they're still gathering it in. Like, man, we've got we to plant, but we haven't finished getting it in. There's so much stuff here. Like, the picture is amazing. The mountains will drip, not with dew, but with wine. 
Everyone go around licking the leaves, right? This is awesome. This is good wine. Not too much in moderation. It's good. But it says that the, the, the hills will flow with wine. I don't know if it's a, a picture of the, the streams running down and it's just, I don't know, the best bubbly champagne or whatever it is. It's, just, it's a picture of abundance and goodness. And it's this amazing picture of how great it will be when God does this. The picture that we're shown here makes the, the huge success of Israel at the time of Amos in, in military conquest and in the kind of their wealth, well, it makes it look so tiny, so trivial and insignificant compared to what God will bring in on that day. And at this point, we get to see just how great God's word is. Not the, the rhythm and rhyme of the way that he, he speaks and, and his prose, but God's commitment to act in ways that we don't deserve. He keeps his promises to a wayward people. God and his word is so good. He's not only just, but he is incredibly merciful. He does not give us all what we deserve. Well, as Jesus steps into the world scene at the start of John's gospel, John points us to the, the Judah in fact, the one who is the Lion of Judah, the one who fulfills this. Who is the true Israel? We get to see his name because there's only one. There's only one in that remnant. And his name is Jesus. And this is what John says of him. John 1 verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Here, God the Son, the one who was and who is and who will come again, the one who spoke through all creation and brought it into existence, he became flesh and dwelt amongst us. I mean, that's why we're excited about Christmas, isn't it? God came to earth to rescue us from our sin. God himself has come to be the lamb that would be slaughtered, has come to be the altar, the place where he would give his life for ours and replace that broken down altar that was taken out and give us a far better and truer picture of God's forgiveness and love. Then in the Gospel of John, in the way that John records things, the first thing that Jesus does after he calls people to follow him and says, watch what I'm about to do. So he calls people to himself, says, watch this. What do you think he'd do? Some amazing miracle, some massive sign. No, he goes to a wedding in John's Gospel. Now, weddings are great, kind of a little bit repetitive. Generally, they both get married. I haven't been to one where they haven't gotten married yet. But everyone, in a good way, um, they get married and you move on. Why, what's so big about this wedding? Well, at this wedding, they run out of wine. That's pretty awkward. A bit of embarrassment to the family. But what Jesus does is he turns water into wine. 700 liters of it. Why would Jesus see this as his first thing that he's going to do? Like, is, is it just that it's a cool party trick? Hey, watch this, guys. Boom. Water, wine. Done. That's a good way to make money. You know, I can just turn the tap on and out comes the best wine. Because it was the best wine that was ever there. Why did he do it? Well, look at what John says. John 2.11. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory. And his disciples believed him. What did they believe? What glory had they seen? Well, as God, through the prophet Amos, promised a day where the hills would run with wine and that the hope of the nation would be in, in, in the right and true Israel coming, Jesus is saying, I'm here. 
the descendant of David who would come and rule God's people forever had arrived. And those that followed Jesus, whom he told to come and watch and see, that ran after him, saw that he was the true and living God. They were convicted. This is the one. He is the one. This is God the Son, David's Son, who would rule the world forever. The one who would rebuild David's fallen tent. What was David's fallen tent? The kingdom of God. In the book of Acts, a prominent leader in Jerusalem by the name of James stood up and spoke some words about his own brother called Jesus, who he was convinced was the true and living God. He says this, Acts chapter 15, verse 13. Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has reported how God first intervened to take from the Gentiles a people for his name. And the words of the prophet agree with this, as it is written. And then he quotes Amos 9. After these things, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. I'll rebuild its ruins and set it up again so that the rest of humanity may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name declares the God who made these things known from long ago. Friends, before Jesus came and died in our place, before he took the penalty that we deserve, we were like Israel with no possibility of restoration, no possibility of relationship with God, but only looking down the barrel of hell. But as Jesus walks onto the world stage, as he comes as God's promised king, as he lays down his perfect life as the, as the lamb of God, the true sacrifice that we deserve, he gives us his life and he takes what we deserve, death. He makes it possible for you and for me to seek him. How great is that news? How amazing is our God that He would treat people who don't deserve it with such mercy and love? Forgiveness is now possible. Judgment doesn't need to be our end. For the northern tribes of Israel, that was no longer possible. But to all people, from all nations who put their trust in Jesus' death in our place, we get to experience the joy of forgiveness. As we get to the end of the book of Amos, the prophet of doom plays a new tune. That unlike Israel, judgment doesn't need to be your end. Amos wants us to see the wonder of the word of God in Jesus. To see his death in our place as the Lamb of God, as the one who takes away the sin of the world. He didn't know that's what he was pointing forward to, but that's the reality of what God was doing through him. That he would bring in his kingdom. And in Jesus, we get to see his kingdom now partially. We saw what Jesus did. He, he brought in um, the healing of sickness. He brought in the reality of bringing abundance. He, he, he recognized that he was the one who would die in our place. And he, he began the kingdom that has started. Oh, it's not here fully yet. There's still evil in the world. There's still sickness and rebellion. But there is a day coming when he comes back. And he'll be installed as King of kings and Lord of lords. And there'll be no more mourning or crying or pain. Friends, as we approach Christmas, let's not make it about us. Let's not go through the motions of half-hearted religiosity. Let's not focus ourselves and kind of keep thinking about how we can go, but rather look at others and what God has done for them. Let us remember the judgment of God and see that what we deserve took the death of God the Son. It took the Word to become flesh to rescue us from our sin.
one of the things that I love about Sarah is that despite my lateness, despite how much it frustrates her, she chooses to love me anyway. And it's not because I'm lovable. I think everyone here recognizes that. It's not because I offer her something in return either. She does it because she's experienced the love of another. That despite her own rebellion and sin, in the face of Jesus, she has known and felt God's mercy. And so she can express that to me. Now, I still need to not just keep doing it and recognize that I can't keep poking the bear forever. But friends, if we can see and show mercy to one another in these ways, how much greater and more amazing is the mercy of God? That He doesn't treat you and me like we deserve. He lavishes His richness on us, His, his kindness. He pays an incredible cost, the blood of His Son, that although our rebellion and sin is huge, His mercy is even greater. Friends, this Christmas... Let's hear the message of Amos, the reality of our human hearts. And let's reflect on the incredible mercy of God in Jesus. And rather than sticking our head in the sands, running to God, letting Him change us so we might live for Him. Let's pray. Father God, there's a sense in which when we come before you today, and we see the reality of what we each deserve. It's a little scary. But we are so thankful that you have made yourself known to us. That you have spoken and given us your word. That you've sent your son. That Jesus has died in our place and offered us his life so that, so that we could be forgiven. That we could call you our father and we can look to the new creation as our home. Father, we confess that all too often we put ourselves in your place. We live our lives with our heads in the sand toward your word. Would you show us where we need to run back to you? Would you show us where we need to confess our wrongs and our sin? And would you help us to put Jesus at the center of our lives as our king and live for him, not in order to be saved, but because you've offered us your salvation in him. Father God, we are so thankful tonight for Jesus and for your mercy. And we ask you would keep capturing us by that reality so that we might go out into your world and live and speak as people who've been shown incredible mercy and that that might ring from the rooftops as we sing your praises. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful, and if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.